You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the Useless Information Retrocast, you'll hear the totally true stories of a Marine whose feet were so big that he was forced to walk barefoot while fighting in the South Pacific during World War II. And then there is the story of a high school vice principal who was so disgusted by some of the images in the school's sex ed textbook that he took a pair of scissors to cut the pictures out of every single book. Or at least that's what he thought he had done. Or how about a sleepwalking man who walked off the roof of a building only to be found sound asleep on the lawn the following morning? Well, all those stories, the question of the day, today's retro sponsor, and so much more, they're coming up next on today's edition of the Useless Information Retrocast. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information everyone. I hope all is going well. And if you're new here, welcome aboard. Today, I'm thrilled to present a fantastic retrocast. And for those who are unfamiliar with the podcast, these are some of the shortest stories that I come across during my research for the full-length stories that I typically tell. So without further ado, let's dive right into today's collection of stories. And we'll begin with a front-page story that appeared in the April 25, 1938 edition of the Boston Globe. It revealed that single women who worked for Boston Edison, a.k.a. the electric company, they were in a race to get married. Under a new company directive, any female employee who got married after April 30th of 1938 was required to submit their resignation to their supervisors within 30 days of their wedding day. So in response to this policy, at least 17 women opted to accelerate their wedding plans to secure their employment. The rush to get married not only led to hurried weddings, but also hastily organized bridal showers, bachelor parties, and other celebrations. Meanwhile, fellow employees were reportedly going broke having to purchase so many wedding gifts in such a short period of time. So just who would take the place of any woman who married after April 30th? Well, married men, of course. And in situations where no married men were available, well, then a single woman could be hired to fill the position. It wouldn't be until 1972 with the passage of the Massachusetts Maternity Leave Act that it became illegal within the state to force women to resign from their jobs once they were married. This law prohibited employers from terminating or otherwise discriminating against female employees because they were pregnant, married, or planning to become pregnant. 
Beginning on March 3rd of 1944, newspapers across the United States began to follow the unique story of Marine Private First Class Lawrence Irving Hansen, who was a 19-year-old who hailed from the small town of Rigby, Idaho. What set this Marine apart was this astonishing shoe size. It was 15 double E. And this was significantly larger than the largest size stocked by the Marines, which topped out at 12 and a half F. So, given the unusual circumstance, he was given a choice that most men didn't have. He could opt to remain stateside, you know, far from the front lines of the ongoing World War. Undeterred by the challenge of his outsized feet, Hansen chose an unconventional path. He purchased three pairs of 15-double shoes at his own expense, and he boldly set off for overseas duty. His determination was admirable, but as we'll soon discover, these extra-large shoes would prove to be both a blessing and a burden. But Hansen was no ordinary Marine. Standing an impressive 6 feet 4 inches tall, that's 193 centimeters, he was a standout athlete during his high school days in Rigby, excelling in football, weights, and track, and at the time of the story, he still held the district shot put record. His determination to serve his country was unwavering. In places like Guadalcanal and the Gilbert Islands, he wore those 15 double E shoes proudly, even when the situation became so dire that he resorted to going barefoot on Tarawa to save his last pair for emergencies. By the time April 8th of 1944 rolled around, the story of Shoeless Hansen appeared to be taking a turn for the better. News arrived that the elusive 15 double shoes that he needed had been located. A Pocatello, Idaho shoe company stepped forward ordering a custom-made pair of shoes tailored to Hansen's extraordinary size, and then they turned them over to the local marine recruiting office for shipment. This was welcome news, but the next obstacle was a perplexing one. You know, how to transport those shoes to Hansen in the distant South Pacific. That's because the post office declined the shipment of the oversized shoes, citing their considerable weight as a barrier to overseas delivery. This decision left citizens disheartened, and several of them took it upon themselves to voice their displeasure through sharply worded letters. For example, Frank Rommelt of Detroit, Michigan wrote, quote, For bleepin' sake, cut the red tape and see that he gets the shoes as quickly as possible. This item makes my blood boil. But sometimes one must think out of the box, in this case a shoe box, to come up with a unique solution. It was Miss Mary V. Markle of Beachwood, New York, who suggested, quote, Did you ever think of sending each shoe in a separate parcel? Hoping my idea works so Marine Private First Class Lawrence I. Hansen gets so shoesy so he can kick a jappy or two for me, unquote. On April 20th of 1944, a breakthrough occurred when the post office reconsidered its earlier decision and accepted the shoes as, quote, military equipment, unquote. This marked a turning point and it paved the way for those crucial shoes to reach Hansen in the South Pacific. It fell upon Marine recruiter Sergeant Wallace Hansen, no relation, to manage the logistics of getting the shoes from Idaho to Hansen. He acknowledged that it was, quote, no small task, but his dedication was unwavering, declaring, quote, but I'd do as much for any fellow Marine, unquote. So did he ever get the shoes? I honestly don't know. 
That's because the press dropped the story shortly after the post office agreed to ship them. But I can tell you that after the war, Hansen returned home and married Lois Burke on May 11th of 1945. Unfortunately, they were divorced less than eight months later on January 4th of 1946. He then married Bonnie Jean Larson on November 26th of 1947. The couple had five children and remained married until his death on April 17th of 2003. Hansen was 79 years old. In light of the recent headlines about book bans, I've playfully quipped that I'd love for one of my books to be banned. And it's not because there's anything objectionable in any of the three volumes I've written. It's simply because banned books tend to see a surge in sales. However, there is an alternative approach. You could simply take a pair of scissors and cut the offensive portions of a book out. And that's exactly what Vice Principal Edward R. Fisco did at Dumont High School in Dumont, New Jersey, back in 1977. The book in question was titled Masculinity and Femininity, and was published by the Hofton Mifflin Company. The school had purchased 50 copies of the softcover book for use in the school's family living class. And this course encompassed subjects like reproduction, birth control, family planning, and venereal disease, and it was mandatory for all 300 senior students at the school. The way it worked was that the senior class was divided into quarters, with one quarter taking the class every 10 weeks, while the rest continued with their gym classes. Fisco claimed that during the previous school year, he had found several defaced copies of the book. Furthermore, a student had torn an image from a reference copy of the book, scribbled lewd remarks on it, and then pasted it to a locker. Well, his solution was quite simple. He cut the six images that he deemed offensive from all of the books. Then, each one was marked with his initials, that's ERF, and the year, which was 1977. And while the pictures were gone, Fisco did leave the captions intact. For example, one read, quote, Scrub, gowned, and gloved, the obstetrician guides the baby's head out of its mother. One of the arms has already emerged. End quote. It wouldn't be until October 30th of 1978 that school superintendent David Dervitz would learn of what Fisco had done. He told a reporter, quote, The philosophy of the Board of Education is if you have to do all that, you shouldn't be using the book at all. He added, It could be that these are not the books that should have been used in the course. If he did not feel that the books were applicable at this particular level, they should have not been purchased in the first place. Unquote. Fisco claimed that he edited out the questionable images because, quote, they were not the kind of pictures I wanted high school students to look at. They were snapshots of male and female organs which I felt were too explicit. We have slides with the same thing, but the slides are locked up. In addition, he expressed fear that the older students would take the books home and show the pictures to their younger sisters and brothers. Quote, Perhaps if I did not have two little girls at home, I would not have done it. If it was a mistake, it was human error, but it was done from an emotional standpoint, unquote. An editorial in the November 7th edition of the Bergen's Record newspaper said in part, quote, Mr. Fisco's censorship shows him to be pathetically out of touch with his students. It continues, We sympathize with the school board members who must now try to resolve this truly incredible episode. We would ask them before they decide on a course of action to consider two questions. 
What would they do if the person who cut the pictures out of the textbooks had been a student rather than an administrator? How would they act if the excised material were not pictures of the human anatomy, but the Second Amendment to the Constitution, the right to bear arms, scissored out of a history textbook by a teacher who was personally committed to gun control laws? The whole issue would be resolved at the November 9th meeting of the Board of Education. First, it was learned that Fisco had only taken his scissors to 28 of the books, not the 50 as originally thought. He then told the board that he was willing to pay for new copies of the book, an offer that the board did accept. The cost for each book was $3.90, which would set Fisco back for a total of $109.20. That's about $500 today adjusted for inflation. Board President John J. Eskelvin stated, quote, For the board, the issue is closed. Now, if you're curious about the book and the images that Fisco cut out, there is a copy that can be viewed online for free on the Internet Archive website at archive.org. Again, the title was Masculinity and Femininity, and it was written by Miller, Rosenberg, and Stokowski with a copyright date of 1971. My overall impression of the book was that it was quite tame by today's standards, I mean, just think about the images that kids have ready access today on their phones. I had a tough time identifying the six images that Fisco cut out. Three were definitely of male and female genitalia, but they were actually detailed drawings, not photos. The image depicting a newborn's birth, which I had previously read the caption for, that one was a genuine photograph. But I have to tell you, it offered little more than a view of the baby's head cradled in the doctor's hands. So here's a question for you. If you live in the United States, you're probably very familiar with Girl Scout cookies. Every year, girls all across the country sell boxes of cookies to raise money for their local troop. My personal favorite is their Thin Mints, which also happens to be their bestseller. In order, samosas, tagalongs, dosidos, and lemon ups round out the top five. I'll eat any of them honestly. But do you know when the Girl Scouts first started selling cookies as a fundraiser? Of course, it started with just one troop selling homemade cookies, and it spread from there. But do you know the first year that they did so? Well, I'll let you think about that for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Ironized Yeast presents Lights Out, Everybody. It is later than Lights Out brings you stories of the supernatural and the supernormal, dramatizing the fantasies and the mysteries of the unknown. We tell you this frankly, 
So if you wish to avoid the excitement and tension of these imaginative plays, we urge you calmly but sincerely to turn off your radio now. This is Arch Obler. Tonight, a strange story about ordinary people. Two girls just like you or your daughter or the girl who works next to you in the office. But first, Frank Martin. Worried because you're underweight and frazzled out? Miserable because you lack the pep and strength and energy you need these busy days? Well, cheer up. Very possibly, you simply need more vitamin B1 and iron than you're getting from your food. And pleasant little ironized yeast tablets supply both of these vital substances. They've been of amazing benefit to thousands with these deficiencies. Gains of glorious new pep and strength and needed pounds within just a few short weeks are nothing unusual. That's right. Ironized yeast tablets. And now? Lights out. Everybody. I've always loved that mood-setting lights-out introduction, so I thought you might be interested in hearing it for yourself. This particular episode was titled Little Old Lady and was broadcast on May 25th of 1943. The series was created by writer-director Willis Cooper, who would later go on to pen the classic Boris Karloff movie Son of Frankenstein in 1939. Lights Out first went on the air on January 1st of 1934 on a local Chicago station and quickly became the premier horror radio program of its day. It was one of the first programs to incorporate realistic sound effects. So here's a brief, and I must admit a little bit gruesome, summary from the site Old Time Radio Downloads, quote, Adhesive tape stuck together and pulled apart simulated the sound of a man or woman's skin being ripped off. Pulling the leg off a frozen chicken gave the illusion of an arm being torn out of its socket. A raw egg dropped on a plate stood in for an eye being gouged, poured corn syrup for flowing blood, cleavered cabbage and cantaloupes for beheadings, snapped pencils and spare ribs for broken fingers and bones. The sound of a hand crushed, a lemon laid on an anvil, smashed with a hammer. All I can say is, ouch. Times were very different back then, as the short advertisement for Iron Isis makes clear. Today, people sell all kinds of pills, you know, dietary programs and gimmicks to lose weight. One of Iron Isis's main selling points is that it helped one put on weight. Clearly, what was considered to be a healthy body back then is very different from what people strive toward today. But you do need to keep in mind that this is at the tail end of the Great Depression and food was in short supply. So selling someone on the idea they could just pop a pill in their mouth and easily gain weight back then it's really not much different from those who have sold weight loss pills in recent years. Let me just read you a portion of a print ad that the company ran in the September 1937 publication of Radio Stars magazine. Quote, Thousands gain 10 to 25 pounds quick with new ironized yeast tablets. Why be ashamed to be seen because of a skinny scrawny figure? Thousands of girls have put on 10 to 25 pounds of solid flesh in a few weeks with these amazing little ironized yeast tablets. No matter how thin and run down you may be, you may easily gain normal attractive curves this quick way. Also naturally clear skin, new pep, 
and all the new friends and good times they bring, unquote. And it goes on from there, but there was also a comic that accompanied the text. And it followed along the same lines as his old Charles Atlas 98-pound weakling ads, except in this case it was aimed at women. So let me set the scene. You have two women in a bedroom, and they're talking about their upcoming vacation. Quote, Just think, Helen, only a few more weeks and we'll be off on our Bermuda cruise. Aren't you thrilled that Dick's coming along too? Of course, you can bet that Helen is not thrilled. She replies, quote, Oh, Anne, I'm sorry I'm going. Dick's never seen me in a bathing suit, and I'm so skinny. And, of course, Anne has the perfect solution to Helen's problem. And don't you worry, Helen. Just start taking ironized yeast right away. It built me up in no time. I should point out that the comic shows a voluptuous Anne in her undergarments and a nearly anorexic Helen to emphasize the point. The final paint shows Hunk, Dick, and Helen now with the perfect figure and in a bathing suit at the beach a few weeks later. He says, quote, Helen, you've been holding out on me. I never knew you had such a gorgeous figure. She then slugged him. No, uh, different times. Instead, she just smiles and thinks to herself, thanks to ironized yeast. So did ironized yeast really work? You could say there certainly was some benefit from the B vitamins and the yeast and the added iron, but I'd say it's doubtful that it lived up to the claims of the manufacturer. You know, even if it did give one a bit of an energy boost and it helped put on a bit of weight, there are definitely easier ways to do that today. That's because many of our foods are loaded with vitamins and minerals, plus, as a whole, we eat foods that are way too fattening. If you're curious, the last listing that I could find for a store selling ironized yeast was from 1984. And now we're up to the section that I've been calling footnotes to history. And these are the short tidbits I come across that typically require no further research, so I'm just going to read them word for word. And our first story appeared on page 29 of the Hartford Current on March 20th of 1927. The headline reads, Children Play Under Ultraviolet Ray Sun, Paris, March 19th, Associated Press. An ultraviolet ray sun that is never clouded shines on an artificial sand beach in a basement of Paris. Children wearing only a pair of trunks and smoked glasses play there on their way to health. This city sea beach is a part of the Institute of Actinology, a clinic fighting tuberculosis. Edward Herat, Minister of Public Instruction, dedicated the beach at a little ceremony while the young patients played in the sand. The beach is 40 feet square with the walls covered with bright aluminum for reflection and the blinding mercury lamps above. What I'll add to this is that Niels Rydberg Finson discovered that ultraviolet light can treat tuberculosis lesions of the skin in a process known as phototherapy, and for that he was awarded the 1903 Nobel Prize in Medicine. But I can't help but wonder how many of these children who had their tuberculosis treated this way would go on to develop skin cancer later in life. And our next story was published on August 24th of 1930 in the Brooklyn Daily Times on page 2. The headline reads, Sleepwalker Falls Two Floors, Sleeps On. New Haven, Connecticut, August 23rd. 
A little jog off the roof before breakfast apparently doesn't mean a thing to 77-year-old Ralph Barthelme, patient at the Coleman Convalescence Home. While sleepwalking last night, Barthelme stepped over the edge of the second-story roof. He was found sleeping peacefully on the lawn this morning. He expressed surprise at his position when he awakened. Barthelme was taken to Grace Hospital where his only injury was found to be a bruised leg. This third story appeared on page 12 of the May 18, 1944 publication of the Redwood City Tribune. The headline reads, War Jitters, Pasadena. Six radio police cars and as many motorcycle patrolmen sped away to capture Irving Porky Wade, 16-year-old high school youth who was delivering, what do you think, drugs, alcohol, nope, eggs. Surrounded, the youth stoutly protested to the officers, Look, my nickname is Porky, Porky Wade, see? Even so, the police suggested it would be well if he paint out the initials P.W. stenciled on the back of his jacket because someone thought he was an escaped prisoner of war. Next up, we have a story from the December 26, 1957 edition of The Evening Vanguard. This appeared on page 17. Headline reads, Winner gets word of free Hawaii trip in Hawaii. Sometime this week, a telegram will be forwarded to Helen Thurtell, a Venice resident who is now fulfilling a lifelong dream by spending a vacation in Hawaii. It will probably read, quote, Congratulations! You've just won a free trip to Hawaii. Come home at once so you can leave. Ms. Thurtell of 2620 Pacific Avenue won the trip for two to Hawaii in the recent contest held by Mar Vista Merchants. The news came too late, however, as she had sailed to the island at her own expense earlier in the month. Ms. Thurtell had longed for a Hawaiian vacation all her life, so when she came into some unexpected money left to her by her brother when he died last month, she apparently figured this was her chance of a lifetime. She invested the cash in a plane ticket to Hawaii. It took Ray Johnson, who represented the Mar Vista merchants, three days of telephoning and legwork to learn her whereabouts. And it wasn't until he stopped in a Mr. Tell's neighborhood beauty salon that he learned the ironic news. Because Mr. Tell secured her winning ticket for Mar Vista Market, that store's owner and manager also received a trip for two to Hawaii. The prizes, along with scores of others, were awarded at a drawing held last Friday. It climaxes a contest which was conducted in the stores throughout Mar Vista. And our last story for today is from the December 19, 1979 publication of the Argus Leader, and this story appeared on page 14. And I should mention that the Argus Leader is in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The headline reads, Dresses Come 63 Years Late by Mary Jo Howe, Argus Leader Staff Writer. 63 years ago, Matilda Hermanson ordered two frilly Easter dresses for her daughter and two dresses for herself from the Sears Roebuck catalog. They arrived a month ago. The four dresses, still wrapped in the original packaging with sales ticket and spring sale catalog intact, were found in the Sherman Depot, Sherman, South Dakota, as it was torn down last fall. The package found its way to an antique shop where a friend of the Hermansons spotted it. 
Three weeks ago, it finally found its way into the hands of Virginia Hermanson, daughter-in-law of the woman who ordered the dresses. She still lives in the Hermanson homestead west of Garretson, South Dakota. Quote, We don't know for sure when the dresses were ordered, the daughter-in-law said. But since the sale catalog said the credit is good through 1917, they must have been ordered about Easter 1916. None of Mrs. Hermanson's daughters could remember their mother ordering a package that never arrived. But it brought back memories from Mrs. Agnes Fugelsby and Mrs. Judith Nelson Garretson and Mrs. Elsa Songset Sioux Falls, who planned to keep the package in the family. Mrs. Fugelsby, who was 16 in 1916, remembers that she wrote most of the catalog orders for the family because she had excellent penmanship. She also solved the mystery of who the little girl dresses were for, as none of the living sisters could have been the right size. Unknown to the others, they had another sister. Effie, who would have been three years old at the time, died that year. The dresses were probably ordered for Easter, the daughter-in-law said. One of the little girl dresses is pink with short sleeves, a low-waisted pleated skirt, and white embroidery. The other is a lacy white voile with pink ribbons. According to the sale catalog that came in the package, the dresses probably cost between $1 and $2. The dresses for the mother include a fancy black organdy dress with a black petticoat and a gold and white sailor-style dress with 25 buttons wrapped from the neck to the waist. According to the catalog, the dresses cost close to $4. That's about $110 today, so it clearly wasn't a cheap dress. Quote, I suppose the dresses are quite valuable now, but we wouldn't sell them, the daughter-in-law said. Their sentimental value is so much more. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So early in the podcast, I'd ask you about Girl Scout cookies. Were you able to figure out when the first cookies were sold? And you don't need an exact date. Do you think you're close? Let's find out. Well, it turns out that they first started selling Girl Scout cookies back in 1917. That's five years after Julia Gordon Lowe established the Girl Scouts in the United States. It was the Mistletoe Troop, which was located in Muskogee, Oklahoma, who baked the cookies in their own homes and then sold them in their high school cafeteria and this was done in an effort to raise money for their troops' various activities. Then, in July of 1922, the Girl Scout magazine The American Girl, it ran an article by Florence E. Neal, who was a local director from Chicago, Illinois. In this article, Neal included a recipe that could make between six and seven dozen cookies. She estimated that the entire batch would cost each Girl Scout between 25 and 30 cents, That's between $4.58 and $5.50 today. Neil instructed that the cookies should be placed in wax bags provided by the local troop headquarters and then sealed with stickers that had the Girl Scout logo on them. She recommended that the cookies be sold at 2 for 5 cents. That's about 92 cents today, 
or in half dozen batches for 12 to 15 cents, or one could get a full dozen for the same 25 to 30 cents that it costs to make the entire batch of cookies. From the money raised on each batch, each scout will be reimbursed for the cost of making the cookies. Then $1 would go to the local headquarters, and the balance, whatever is left over, would go to the local troop treasury. Neil wrote that if each of the 2,000 Cook County Girl Scouts baked and sold one batch per month, $24,000 worth of cookies would be sold each year. That's nearly $440,000 today. It wouldn't be until 1936 that the Girl Scouts began standardizing their cookies and had their first licensed baker make them. My favorites of Thin Mints weren't introduced until three years later, and they were originally called Cookie Mints. The name was then changed numerous times after that. In order, they were Chocolate Mint, then Thin Mint, then Cookie Mint, then Chocolate Mint, then Thin Mints, then Thin Mint, and finally back to what I've known my entire life, Thin Mints. And as much as I'd love to have a Thin Mint cookie right now, I can tell you nothing can beat a tasty homemade cookie that comes fresh out of the oven. So get your paper and pencil ready because here is Florence Neal's original Girl Scout cookie recipe. First, let's start with the ingredients. You need one cup of butter or substitute, one cup of sugar, two tablespoons of milk, two eggs, one teaspoon of vanilla, two cups of flour, and two teaspoons of baking powder. As for the cooking directions, it states, cream butter and sugar, add well-beaten eggs, then milk, flavoring, flour, and baking powder. Roll thin and bake in a quick oven. Sprinkle sugar on the top. In other words, these were sugar cookies. Anyway, now that you have the recipe, start cooking. Well, I hope you enjoyed the stories that I selected for today's retrocast. I just want to tell you that the next full-length story may be delayed a bit, and that's because I'm giving a talk on Thursday at Hudson Valley Community College, which is uh, right down the road from me. I'm still not sure which stories I'm going to be presenting there, and I'm scheduled to talk for two hours, so I have a lot of prep to do between now and then. Now, my plan was to announce that I was giving this talk on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, but they sold out all 32 seats within a couple of hours, which basically meant there was nothing left for me to announce. But I did agree a few days ago to do another talk on Friday, March 24th of next year. Hard to believe it's going to be 2024 already. But I was told that that date could change, so just pencil it in on your calendar if you're interested. And that definitely won't be a repeat performance. I'm going to put together a whole different set of stories to tell. While I've opted not to accept payment for the talk, they do charge a fee to attend. It was $12 this past time, and that covers the cost of the facility, their staff, and all the catalogs they mail to everyone in the area. Just a reminder that you can find the Useless Information Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to subscribe. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, so be sure to visit airwavemedia.com where you will find a curated selection of some of the best podcasts in not just history, but also science, wellness, education, and the arts. As always, thanks for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. 
and we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.